The sound of the funeral bell, for many of us, merits no more than a momentary thought. That is, of course, unless the bell is associated with the death of a relative or friend. The census figures indicate that about 33,000 people are put under the clay every year in the Republic. But there are no figures available that reveal the number of people left behind by those who died and who are deeply affected emotionally and perhaps financially because a close relative or friend has passed on. At a guess it would be safe to say that an average of three people are greatly saddened by any one person's death. So about 100,000 people are bereaved annually in the 26 counties. Up to 70 or 80 years ago, most children could expect to lose a brother or sister at some time. But nowadays, it is quite common for a person to reach middle age without ever having been close to someone who has died. Yet, whenever the death of someone we love occurs, it's as if as our whole world has been turned upside down, and for a while we lose our bearings, because grief is the price we pay for love. It's the cost of commitment. The loss and deprivation caused by bereavement vary from person to person, depending on different circumstances. Yet experts tell us that grief does follow a fairly standard pattern. And in this programme, we'll hear how some people reacted to the crisis of bereavement. Margaret was a young married woman with a family. One evening, she was out walking with her husband, and he said he didn't feel too good. And when they came home... He lay on the bed for a while. I gave him his cup of tea and two aspros, and that was about half six on a Sunday night, which, which Sunday it was. And then I went to put one of the little fellows to bed, down or was three, I carried him up the stairs, and I knew my husband was dead. He had a heart attack. It was, I didn't know at the time it was a heart attack, but his eyes was gone and the book was on his chest. So I ran out in the street looking for a priest or a doctor on a Sunday, and I couldn't get one. And my brother-in-law seemed to just be visiting me, and he ran up to Danny to try and do something for him but he couldn't and then when I, I, when I went to get the doctor the doctor said I'd have to get the police in see they couldn't move him or anything like that of course when I got the death certificate here that was he was carnage of posts that was my first you know, thing. so at, at that time I nearly lost my reason I left my home I gave up my house in Whitehall and I moved down but I didn't walk out down to my mummy so I stuck that for a few years with the four little children. I walked and everything like that, and then I met my second husband. And we came up here and we lived up here. And if Margaret's description of the loss of her husband seems matter-of-fact now, that's because another blow was to come that dulled her earlier memories. So anyway, I got on up here now. It wasn't too bad. And the children were going to school. I had three more children. That was seven children I had here. Now I sent... My son down there to St David's and he was very good boy and I reared him till he was 20 years of age and he got a job in telecommunications and uh, he was doing very well and he was down the country all the time and he only came up for weekends. So his weekend in 1975 he came up on a Friday night and he babysit for him and I to go out. On Saturday night he got ready to go out. He went down to his girlfriend's for his tea. Uh, that was about six o'clock he left the house which Saturday and uh, I we, we used to re- bring us in fish and chips and a bottle of lemonade every Saturday night that was our treat for him, from him and I waited here till about half twelve and I said to my husband I said oh, look, I'm not waiting anymore and going up to bed so we went up to bed 
and I must have went to sleep but I heard terrible noises and talk and men's voices and I jumped out of bed and looked out the window and here I see the squad car with the police outside and I knew there was something wrong and being now I had another boy out as well the other, the other fellow was out too at a dance and I thought maybe they were in a fight naturally like with boys that was when I saw the police and everything around and I got up and I ran down the stairs and my other son, he was only 17, he was in the hall with something behind his back and um, I said, what's wrong with what's wrong? He was terrible white, I said, what's wrong with you? And he said, I said, where's my other fellow? And I said, where's Paul? And he said, mommy, um, there's something wrong with him. He met her in an accident. And I said, what's that behind your back? And it was his shoe. It was all bits, his new shoe. And uh, my husband and Dom went in the to call it in the squad car to the National Hospital. Now I only thought he was uh, like court. I didn't know he was gone. And it was uh, that was five o'clock in the morning. So I, I lay there in that sofa until they came back. And my husband went into my next door neighbour first. Uh, I believe he was broken hearted. He was crying and then said, How will I go in and tell her? How will I go in and tell her? So anyway he came in here and he said, He's gone and I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what to do, so they got the doctor for me, and he put me on, you know, the tablets, the Valium, and calmed me down. But um, I, I, I can't even go to the funeral. What I used to do is, I kind of, I block my mind. Like there's an awful lot of people there. It was the first teenager to be killed up here, and it was, the chapel was absolutely packed. And um, you're kind of blank. You don't remember even what people are saying to you, like with the shock and everything like that. So anyway, I got through the funeral, I got through all that. But I used to take kind of weaknesses. I was taking weaknesses and blackouts and things like that. And one day I was very bad. I put the two wardrobes up to the bedroom door and wouldn't let anyone in. I was going to end it all. But you anyway, really felt like ending it, didn't you? I did, yeah. Was that long after the funeral? A week after. And the two wardrobes, the small one and the big one, I pushed them. And it was not uh, my... My my the girl was roaring and crying. They were running. My husband tried to put his shoulder to the door, but he couldn't get in. And it was the next door neighbour, not that neighbour. My neighbours are very good. It was that neighbour there that came in, and she tried to coax me come out, and you won't. But I did. I I said I'll end it all. I said. And what were you going to do? Were you going to take an overdose yes, or something? I had the tablets. I had them, and uh, I had them all up in my handbag. And I was saying, I'll take it. What good is living after raising your child so far and after raising him so hard? Like to think that God took him. But you see, my husband used to say to me, he didn't take him. He didn't want him. God didn't want him. It was an accident. Like. So then I'd say, well, he should be here with me. Like, but how and ever, I pulled through that. And it was a beautiful, that was summer of 75, was a beautiful summer. It was the nicest summer we had. And I would try to go to the seaside with my three small ones and him. He took it. had to stay to work, I think it was six weeks. And he kept saying, I must go back to work. I couldn't stay in the house on my own. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask the door. That's the way the fright gets you. Even though you tonight, I'd look through the deletion blinds. And, say, and I dread the police. Once I see the police, I know it's trouble coming to me. And it's always fatal. It's never like, like oh, well, even if, yes, they were in a fight. It's always like, any time the police came to my door, my, sons were de- my son was dead or... My husband was dead when he came. But um, I tried to pull myself together anyway for the children. I even used to go out, and I used to go out with him for a drink. I love a glass of stout. That's my favourite. I take three glasses of stout any time he brought me out. And uh, even in the pub, all of a sudden, I'd be just crying. 
And he'd say, don't be crying, Peggy, because people are looking at you, thinking that, that we're unhappy. And I'd say, well, I'm just crying. And another thing I cry for is when I see the fellas now that are my son's age and they're married and they've wives and they're, or even if they're never married, they're walking in and out and he's gone. And uh, I was, really, I don't know how anyone gets over it. I say that, but I did. I got over it. I went, as a matter of fact, I didn't go to Mass either. I wouldn't go. Nobody passed any remark in the home, of course. They ignored me, kind of. They never said to me, are you going to go or did you go? So in the end, then I kind of went back myself. Like, um, of course, I thought, said to myself, no, nobody's taken any notice of me, so I'll have to kind of pull myself together. Another thing, too, I wouldn't wash my face. And when my kids come up from school and he'd come up over, he'd ignore me. I'd have no dinner for him. But he'd never say, where's the dinner? Just like that. And then in the end, I knew I was hurting them as much as I was hurting myself. And there's Paul there. And uh, I picked myself up and I started to get, go to the church again. I got my hair cut and I went out at him and I wasn't as bad. I know I really pulled myself together. Was this now a long time afterwards that you started to pick up again? No, I suppose um, three months. I, I was really bad now for really three months. And another thing about it too, when the smallmas would say, who are you crying over? What are you crying for now? that I kind of stopped it and tried to clean the house. The house and all was neglected now, and I wouldn't do anything, just sit and cry and smoke. And so I pulled myself together, and, oh, yes, my husband brought me on a holiday. As a matter of fact, I didn't even want to go to. And I was gave him no thanks, for kind of, for doing it, and then I realised that he was suffering just as much as me, like, like, I mean, he felt the hurt just as much as me. So then I realised, and I picked myself up, and I got the... Like clean the house. I used to even do a little bit of the garden and things like that. I got on terrific. And every day I was getting better. I went back to Mass and I prayed for him. And I thought it was terrific. And then that was five years ago. While bereavement may affect people in different ways at different times, it normally follows a general pattern, as Dr. Dermot Walsh of the Medico Social Research Board explains. It is customary among among some psychiatrists to talk about uh, a fairly stereotyped uh, grief um, pattern or grief reaction evolving over six months or even a year. Uh, the first uh, stage is one of a numbing shock, uh, an incomprehension uh, as to the um, nature and the quality of what has happened and also, of course, the implications. Um, During this time, uh, the individual may use denial, that's to say he he may, at one or another level or at many levels, uh, indicate that he doesn't accept the death as having happened, despite all the objective evidence. He may give evidence of um, hostility. Uh, In other words, he's very cross um, with the circumstances, uh, the... Uh, other people involved uh, in the death situation. By that I mean the, the um, if it were a road accident, for example, the driver of the car or the other person involved in the accident. If it were a, a death during an operation, um, the doctors and nurses in, uh, involved. So that um, hostility is, is sometimes apparent. Another um, phenomenon which is often seen is that of uh, a state of uh, quasi 
automat automatism. That is to say, the individual uh, seems to go around as if in a dream or if in a daze, uh, performing routine functions um, uh, in a very uh, stereotypic fashion, uh, almost without the intervention of consciousness. Uh, and then uh, this situation, which may last for um, uh, up to a week or thereabouts, will gradually pass off, and uh, a frank expression of grief by uh, tears, uh, by uh, obvious overt uh, trappings of mourning, uh, poor sleep perhaps, and um, various psychosomatic disturbances which uh, give rise to pains and aches and physical complaints. And that situation of uh, the uh, overt expression of grief uh, may continue for uh, weeks or even months. And then there is a, a phase when the uh, emotional aspect of things uh, tends gradually to be replaced uh, by the cerebral, cognitive, intellectual realization of, um, of what it all means in terms of how am I going to survive and manage in the future without the support uh, that I have just lost. Uh, this, of course, will uh, continue the uh, somatic distress, the physical distress of um, poor sleep. Um, uh, there will be uh, perhaps physical pains and aches and general sense of not feeling well. Uh, there may be even feelings of guilt in relation to uh, the deceased, things that I should have done and didn't during his lifetime, or more particularly things that I, I, I didn't do which, and I feel I might have done, uh, in the circumstances immediately surrounding his death. For example, why didn't I call a doctor sooner? That sort of thing. Um, and then there may be um, other uh, expressions which still derive from the mourning process, such as um, uh, bad dreams in which the, uh, the deceased is seen as he was or she was during lifetime. Uh, this coming back uh, to the uh, individual of uh, the lost person during um, uh, sleep, during dreams. And then there may be a preoccupation with uh, the physical um, appurtenances of the deceased, uh, looking at photographs, for example, looking at objects that, um, that he or she was particularly attached to, a pair of slippers, something quite trivial like that. Uh, and then there is, of course, the uh, the grave visiting business, um, which plays a part in the um, in the uh, overt expression of grief. That is to say, going frequently to the grave and uh, and crying. Uh, of course, there will be differences between the sexes. Men and women express their emotions differently, and we can expect that there will be more um, overt grief expression among women than uh, among men, who are expected in our culture to have a stiff upper lip. The loss of a husband and the loss of a 20-year-old son in a comparatively short space of years may seem a heavy burden to bear. Yet Margaret suffered another traumatic blow. And I really used to think that God would never strike me down again. And this year, it was made the front of the hurdle. It was in the front of the hurdle, my husband. Um, that was, um, it wasn't it, but it was um, the 9th of August. And that's the 9th of August. We always went on our holidays the second week in August. And that was the week for the last four years we were gone that was the Saturday we used to go 
and he went out to walk. As a matter of fact, see, he was two years out of walk. This was your second husband? Yes, second husband. He was two years out of work. No, through no fault of his own. He was made redundant. And he was, like, he was getting casual jobs, this, that and the other. And um, he went into this one. And he really thought it was terrific. And he was working his holidays for me. And he said to me, I didn't want him to go in to walk a Saturday morning. And I said to him, don't bother your head going in. You think we were hungry, which we weren't. I said, you're after doing enough. I said, we have enough money to take the day, take the Saturday off. And he said, no, he's working Saturday and Sunday. He said, no, I won't. And I said to him, um, no, he says, I'll take it in, in next week off a day now, and I'll bring you into town and I'll bring you, get your tea out and I'll get the kids wherever we want to get. As a matter of fact, it was buying me a new suite. And I said to him, all right, that's satisfying. He said, I said, yes, that'll do. So he went in and he got up, he left the house. As a matter of fact, he was terrific. I just showed you, like you don't know. He used to walk to walk sometimes. He was that agile, walk. And he'd be forced outside Melbourne Street Chapel, and if he was there, he'd get got mass. So he took a point and everything. He was no angel there. But um, he left the house, and I, that was my last words to him. And at 10 to 12, we were at being up at the shopping centre. And it was a lovely day, too. I only had one son with me, the youngest fellow here. And we came down here. There was only him and I in the house. And uh, he looked out the window, and he said, Oh, Mammy, the police are at the door. And I said... But the police are at the door. What would, I, what would the police want of me? I do nothing. I did nothing on them. And neither did your daddy. And um, I know I said none of these are in trouble. And he was walking up. I said, you know, it's the wrong address. They're looking for somebody else. I was real cheeky going out, going saying, not here. And immediately he said the name. I knew, because it's an unusual name. And he said, uh, your husband just met her in an accident. And I got all stuttery. And I nearly died. And I, I knew that he was unconscious because he would have never sent police here because Mr. Stark was a phone. And I know that he, once I saw the police, I dread them. And I said, uh, is, he, is, he, is, it any, is he bad? And he said, you're to come immediately. So I wasn't able to... I, I went over to Mrs. the guy next door, and her husband was there. And he ran through to the hospital. And the word came back that it was to come immediately. So my next door neighbour which he was very good I don't know what I do only for him and my youngest the other son he was coming for walk he said I'll go with you mummy and I said I needn't and I really didn't think at that time it was bad I said I oh, know I said it'll be alright I'll go myself I'll see him and anyway we went to the hospital and when I went into the hospital through the clinic doors or to the outpatients I saw a sister at the desk and there was my son and my next door neighbour and me and I knew. She must have known who I was, but as soon as she saw me, she just left everything and walked straight over to me. And I knew then. She said, oh, come on in here. She ushered me into a private room. And she said, I have terrible news for you. She said, your husband is dead. Well, I needn't tell him. I threw myself on the floor. He wanted to keep me in. I said, if you keep me in, I'll jump out that window. I'll end it all. Now, this sister didn't even know what happened to me previously. She thought that I was just a kind of a, well, an actress or something like that. She didn't know how was that hit me before. And my next-door neighbour, he didn't even know what to do. He was crying. He just didn't know what to do. So she said, we'll have to keep her in. I said, oh, no, you're not keeping me in. I'll go to... Uh, I'll, I'll kill myself, I said. And she said, uh, she may rob me a lovely cup of tea. Now, they were very nice to me. They just couldn't do enough for me. And uh, she gave me an injection to calm me down for six hours. So they kept me in for about an hour. 
and my neighbor and my son, my first son. He was just broken hearted. He was in a corner, just crying like a two year old. He just couldn't believe that we're at the meeting again. And um, we came home, and my next door neighbour be brought, brought me in here to their house. And uh, that girl in there in the kitchen now, just, she just couldn't, she doesn't know, you couldn't know what to say to me. Nobody knew what to say to me. As a matter of fact, my neighbours, they're only talking to me now because they said when they see me, they ran the other way. Because, do you know how people just didn't know what to say to me? And you know what? I had three priests over me. Even the priests couldn't give me consolation. They just, just they kept saying, my sisters came up. They just didn't know what to say to me. The problems facing the bereaved person depend on age, marital status, material circumstances and many other factors, as well as the emotional disturbance. The pattern I have described, of course, uh, is a fairly general one, but I think one should uh, make it clear that circumstances are very important. There's obviously a world of difference between um, a young wife whose husband is suddenly uh, killed, leaving her with young children, on the one hand, and on the other, uh, the uh, death of uh, an elderly spouse suffering from chronic disabling and perhaps painful illness whose death is to himself and often to his uh, wife or uh, her husband um, a happy release. Uh, clearly um, the grief uh, that is felt in the two situations is very different both quantitatively and qualitatively. So I think one, uh, one can't legislate for every situation when one, one is putting forward a descriptive um, scenario uh, of bereavement and grief. Uh, in that sort of situation where there is an elderly couple together and one who's been chronically ill for a long time, uh, then the situation may actually be one of relief because now the spouse, the spouse can actually get a night's sleep uh, and can physically uh, enjoy a better quality of life than when he or she were uh, up all night looking after the ill one and perhaps in psychological anguish because of the pain um, of, the, uh, of the ill uh, spouse. Um, uh, of course, when one is talking about the elderly, uh, there are other difficulties. If a spouse is left alone who is um, elderly and who has lost uh, a marriage partner of half a century, uh, then uh, a feeling of futility and uh, worthlessness and going on may become apparent. And so um, the chances of suicide, for example, are high in that situation. There may be the feeling on the part of the surviving spouse that um, he or she would like to join uh, he or she who has died in the next world. And suicide is an obvious way of doing of, of doing that, or at least hastening it. I'm not saying that that suicide is very frequent in these situations, but certainly such a uh, such a person is at greater risk for suicide uh, than the population as a whole. Catherine was a young wife with a young husband and a young family. They left Ireland to seek a new life in a faraway country. A few months later, tragedy struck. We were only seven months away. Well, I never. My husband went out with some friends and didn't return. And very late at night, around 12 o'clock, I thought that something had happened. So I went to the station to report him not coming in. 
and while I was there the policemen came in and reported an accident and it turned out it was my husband had been in an accident killed along with another chap that was driving. My husband wasn't in his own car. He um, he was a passenger and the other chap driving, he was also killed. So that particular, I was in the police station at the time and it was another friend and I just couldn't believe it. I was dumbfound, absolutely dumbfound and I just kept saying, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? So anyway, when I realised that all, he definitely was dead and the whole lot then I you know some friends came to help me and the whole lot and I didn't know whether I was going to get home fast or what I was so shocked I I was just depending on other people to help me you know so I've been to a priest and the whole lot an Irish priest and he thought that the best thing for me to do would be would I consider having my husband cremated and have the ashes brought home and buried in the normal way? When I thought about it then, I hadn't much of a choice, so I thought, well, it was the best thing to do for myself and the children for my life. And as time went on, I just bought a house and a whole lot and tried to settle in. But I still, I can't accept my husband's debt at all. There's no way I can accept my husband's debt. I feel that I've been deprived of life and... I feel that the children are deprived and, you know, there's so much involved when you, you know, when you haven't got your husband. And I think with children, you do need a man around the house. You need a man for to give you a hand and you need him, you know, with problems with the children, you've got to tell him. And I feel that children play on you and it's an, it's a hard job when you're left with children and then you worry about different things, things that you talk to your husband about and loneliness above all. I think loneliness is the worst. I mean, people think because you have children that, you know, it's not great you have the children. I know it's great, all right, but at the same time, it's not the same as a, a man. There's no, no way. I, when I open my eyes every single morning, I think to myself, oh, another day, another day of, you know, without Colin, without my husband. And I, you know, and the last thing at night, you know, I just say, gosh, at times I feel that I'd love to be surprised when I open the door, he's standing there. You know, I know that. I mean, that's a silly thing to say. I know, but it's always. I'm always hoping. I'm always wishing and hoping. This is how I feel. That it sort of hasn't gone out of my mind at all. You know that way. I feel it hasn't definitely left me yet. The shock. And another thing, I, I often think. You know, I just say, well, I suppose my time will come too, and I'll probably meet Colm then. But at the back of my mind, I just say, is it really? You know, is that really true? You know, I don't. I don't think much about those things at all. I suppose when you pray hard enough, I suppose you do realise, you know, but I haven't come round to that yet, you know. I really haven't now. I think about when we used to sit together watching television and arguing over different programmes that would be on and uh, I often used to, you know, I used to say to him, um, oh, I wish you'd stop smoking that old pipe, some things like that, you know. And I just say, oh, God, you know, if I if he only was sitting there now, I wouldn't say it, you know, these sort of things. And certain programmes on the television I watch that I, I well, would be on, uh, I say, oh, Colin used to watch that. It's 20 years now since Eileen's husband died. And although his death was not unexpected, she still has very vivid memories of her reactions at the time. My doctor came now and he heard it and he gave sleeping tablets to my brother which, and he said, make her take them. 
Now, it was about three o'clock in the morning, I think, when I went to bed and I took the sleeping tablet and as I wasn't accustomed to them, it put me to sleep immediately. But I woke up at eight o'clock in the morning and I, it's very hard to describe the feeling of waking up in the morning and finding Dermot is gone. You will never hear his voice again. It was really terrible and there was a feeling as if a cold, cold hand were gripping on my heart inside my chest and that I couldn't get rid of it. It was a terrible thing. I think the following morning when you wake up to stark reality, you nearly die. It's, you, you, you would like to be dead. So then, of course, the funeral and crowds of people came. I didn't have house private. But then after everybody had gone, somebody used to be in every night and I'd have a nightcap with them and that did make me nice and drowsy and I fell asleep. But then the first night I was alone, there was a bottle of whiskey in the kitchen. And I went to the kitchen and I said, I'll have a nightcap now that'll make me go to sleep. The children, of course, were very young and they were put to bed early. And uh, I went to the kitchen. I stood at the kitchen door. And I said, no, you don't. Don't drink it on your own. You mustn't. I could, I was dying for a drink now, dying for it. But I turned back. And I twisted and I turned in the bed until three in the morning and several times I said, I'll get up and I'll get myself a hot whiskey. But I didn't. And I think it saved me. Because really if I had gone in that time, I think I would have gone on the bottle. Jim was a young man working in America when he got news of his father's death. I was uh, a teacher out there and there were... Uh, a number of us teachers and a number of the parents putting on a play called Goldilocks and um, I happened to be all dressed up and ready to go on stage to play the part of Goldilocks and uh, there was a telephone call from me from from Ireland and uh, I said well could I not wait till the play was over could I not call me back then or if, if it's that bad I could always call them back myself and they said no it's very important you better get over there now so I went over and uh, it was my brother on the phone and he told me the bad news. It came as a shock. Um, I was sort of speechless uh, for a few minutes and then I thought, I said, well, just leave me to think it out and um, I'll call you back in a while. Well, did it take you long then to get over the initial shock? Um, it took me quite a while. Um, uh but particularly um, because I wasn't working. I felt if I was working and doing something, um, my mind wouldn't have been as preoccupied with the thought of my not seeing my father alive anymore. Uh, the fact that I was um, at home and uh, uh, thinking about it um, and that didn't wasn't concentrating other, on other things, that wasn't uh, a help. But when I got back to work, I um, um, I sort of put it out of my mind. Um, even though I still cared, it put it 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 um, it helped to be back at work. And uh, it was a matter of say about uh, two three weeks after the the funeral that I was back at work again. And again, I was away. I had to go back to, back to Canada. I was uh, away from home. 
But do you find now that uh, his memory has receded somewhat in your mind, or are there times uh, every day or every week that you still think of him and you have, well, slight pangs of grief still? Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't say I, I, I have pangs of grief. I, I, um, places, uh, places I go to or people I talk to, we often, or even when I uh, go to visit my own brother, or uh, brothers, we often talk about him and and um, think about. Talk about times past, and and um, uh, when when we when I go down to visit the family, um, people talk 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 about him a lot, and um, I don't I don't have any um, grief at that time. I, I feel proud more than anything else. It's not easy to determine which loss is the greatest: the death of a husband, wife, father, mother, child, or some other loved one because so much depends on the circumstances and the particular relationship at the time of bereavement. But Margaret, who lost two husbands and a son, is definite about her feelings. He's part of you. And I mean, your husband is your best friend you have. I'll say that, or vice versa. He's your mate. But your, your child is part of you. And that's why people cry to over children that they're only, we say only maybe two or three hours in your arms but they're still part of you and that's why your your child is the worst it's the hardest to bear I think so anyway and when you're thinking of the three losses still after this space of time it's the son that makes gives you the greatest feeling of grief yes he's, he gives me worse grief than any of the rest of them because he was so young too youth he, he wasn't he wasn't sick even I, I said when the priest saying to me I said if the priest if even if he was sick and was t- or even if he was injured and the doctors in the hospital say well he only has three or four days but you see I never even had time to talk to my son only when he said bye to me at half six and that's what that's the terrible thing and uh, it's the irony of it and of course they wouldn't let me look at them, look at him he said there was nothing wrong with him, but I don't believe that but they wouldn't let me into that well, he was knocked down by a car crossing the road crossing the road yeah and um, he was, uh, I think it was the he- his head injury. That's what's on the death certificate. It was his head that got it. I, I, others, otherwise, they said there was nothing wrong with him. But now I don't believe that. Because they wouldn't let me look at him. They wouldn't let me look at my husband either. I never saw them. Because they, I don't know why. Why do people do that? Funeral director Frank Jennings has seen the many facets of bereavement over a long period. Yet he still finds it difficult to determine the extent of grief caused by any particular death. I don't really know. You see, people are, 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 are composed of so many things. We're all individuals. Some of us, as uh, you said to me earlier, just don't seem to be able to cope at all. Others seem a little less emotional. So to some people, the death of, of, of a close relative is something they can they can they can carry on with that they can they can manage. To others, it's 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 a shattering of, of everything they knew, and uh, it affects them so terribly that that it's quite frightening. Certainly, a child's is more a child's death is 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 more sentimental. But you know, I think people tend to get over a child's death because the child hasn't become a part of their living so much. Uh, it hasn't become a breadwinner or somebody they totally depended on. It's somebody they certainly loved, but they tend to place that sort of that sort of an emotion in a glass case and remember it for the rest of their lives. But the death of a husband or a wife, I would think, especially in a, an accident 
where, where, where the whole reality of it only comes in by degrees, I, I think can be the worst thing of the whole lot. You are in daily contact with bereavement and with grief. Uh, does that make it any easier for you? Do you feel that you could cope quite easily when a bereavement would come your way? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, I certainly would know what to do, but how I'd do it would be, would be a different thing altogether. You see, when you've dealt with so many people over a period... By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years here next, next April, and over the, I've seen thousands and thousands of people, and average things happen. There's the loss of a husband or a wife... And, 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 and as I mentioned to you, the, 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 dreadful, the, the, the dreadful sense of nowhere to go and n- nothing in the future for you. I know this is going to happen to me. I know either I'm going to die when my wife will be left or she's going to die and I'll be left. And, you know, they talk about people as they get older that they, 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 their children tend to put them... In, in, in nursing homes or in hospitals because there's no room for them. This is quite true. So possibly this is going to happen to me. So it doesn't make it easier. It's not that I'm, I, I'm upset about it, but I know the facts. And uh, whereas I don't think it's a good idea that other people should be aware of these facts. There are too many imponderables. But taking an average, I can see that these things are very likely to happen to me. Now, you have seen death very, very often. Are you scared of death yourself? Absolutely. I'm talking about the physical side of death. I know how it affects other people, and whether it's my death or somebody in my family, I know from their experience how I'm going to feel. So, yes, I am. I'm quite frightened of it. While there is life, there is hope, and the passage of time alleviates many of the more painful pangs of grief, even for distressed people like Margaret. I left again. Just the same, it was after my time. I'm older, and I, there's not much fight in me left. I mean, the fight has nearly gone out of me. I really have no social life yet, anyway. But I intend to do something about it. I will now, when I get a little bit better. Like, I'll say, now, please God, after Christmas, I'm going to try and um, try and get a little bit of a job. I to kind of try and get me out of myself. Because, see, you must keep going. See, you must stand up and uh, be counted.